0: Good morning everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Just a reminder, um, there will not be Grand Rounds the next two weeks for obvious reasons. Um, And um, the Grand Rounds schedule in January will come out pretty soon. Um, We're pleased today to have Dr. Andrew Wilking join us. He um, obviously has a great deal of humility, and a sense of humor or satire. So he he provided his own introduction. So I will read this to you, and then I'll fill in the blanks, since he's a bit modest. So uh, today's speaker is Dr. Andrew Wilking. Dr. Wilking graduated from a college consistently ranked among the top 50 in the nation by US News and World Report. He attended a medical school accredited by the American College of Graduate Medical Education. He completed a residency in pediatrics at a hospital now named after an investment bank, which helped precipitate the financial recession of 2008. (laughs) He went on on to do a fellowship in pediatric rheumatology. For 25 years, he was a member of the faculty at Baylor College of Medicine, where he published more than two papers (laughs) and dabbled in medical education. He is now professor emeritus of pediatrics and in private practice in Keene, New Hampshire. His presentation today concerns anti-inflammatory medications as immunosuppressants. And now, just to fill in, he went to school at Harvard College. Yes, but I want to do it anyway, so you're going (laughs) to. His medical school was Columbia. And um, his residency uh, was at um, Columbia Presbyterian. His fellowship in pediatric rheumatology was at Baylor. Please help me welcome Dr. Wilking.
1: Thank you all for coming. Um, I guess the back of the room is significantly warmer than the front of the room, or you're afraid that I might call on you if you sat in the front? I understand. Some habits never change, right? We learned it in medical school, i in the back. OK. So uh, again, thank you for coming, especially on a cold morning. Uh, Dr. Wilkinson, can you make sure your microphone is turned on? It
0: doesn't appear to be on just
1: well, the green light is on, it's on in the on position, but okay. you don't hear me? Yeah, just
0: raise the mic up a little bit higher maybe, with that.
1: Higher on your lapel, up close and person, is that better? Good, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to present to you the results of the study that I did looking into uh, anti-inflammatory medications And they ask the question, are they immunosuppressants or not? Um, And so these are my definitions. Uh, I have chosen to talk about uh, three groups in one particular anti-inflammatory medication. We're going to talk about (coughs) nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, methotrexate. The uh, more recent tumor sclerosis factor inhibitors and corticosteroids. And I'm I'm, I'm defining an immunosuppressant as something which increases the incidence of either infection or malignancy. Outcomes, objectives, if you will. You know, you have to have objectives these days. So, either I'm going to prove this hypothesis, I'm going to disprove it. Or, as is usually the case with uh, science, the results are murky, and you know about your bagels. Uh, Now, uh, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to talk very briefly about my methodology, how I did this study. I'm going to talk even more briefly about immunology. And then I will address each of the four uh, groups of medication and the individual medication trexate in turn. So methodology was fairly straightforward. Uh, I spoke to a lot of my colleagues uh, at Baylor and in general practice. I did a review of the literature, and then I had to do some thinking. I tried to do as little of that as possible it's painful, but I did do some. Um, now, I show this slide for the younger members of the audience. This is a library, well, it houses a library, it actually houses your library. And P. Uh, S. Eliot wrote that uh, all, inform- my, all information is not knowledge. But I went into this building, there's actually a fair amount of knowledge in this building, and it might be worth some while to go there from time to time, as opposed to just using your computer, There, there are things in here that you can't actually get off your computer. Um, anyway, sorry, That's that? Uh, and then I said I'd touch on immunology, and there it is—we've touched on it. <laughs> okay. So, first question are, is: Are nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs immunosuppressants? And first, uh, do they cause cancer? Well, so I went through PubMed, and this is what I found: 137 articles, which purportedly talked about NSAIDs causing cancer, and almost 9,000 uh, articles talked about NSAIDs treating cancer. Well, I didn't look up all 9,000, but I did look up all 137, and I found that every single one of them was miscategorized, that none of them, in fact, were articles talking about NSAIDs causing cancer, but treating cancer. So, raise it to say, Loquator, I feel that uh, NSAIDs do not cause cancer. However, the question about infection is not quite so straightforward. Now, as we will learn, as you already know, in fact, you can find uh, case reports about anything. Uh, Whatever axe you want to grind, there's sure to be at least one case report that will support your axe grinding. So the first two of these are articles from the adult literature uh, dealing with problems with patients who uh, were taking one uh, non anti-inflammatory uh, medication for another and had uh, a worsening, typically, of an infection that they'd already had. This last article by Brogan and his associates uh, was an article done on children talking about group A streptococcal, fasciitis, complicating primary varicella, and again, a case report. Um, but bringing up the possibility that maybe non anti-inflammatory drugs may make infections worse or bring them on. Well, so that led to several really good studies being done. And the first was done by Peterson and his colleagues back in 96. And they looked for risk factors for invasive A based infections in children with varicella. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things they looked at was ibuprofen, but they really couldn't find a good connection between ibuprofen and worsening infections, and specifically Group A uh, strep infections and kids with uh, chickenpox. Uh, next study was done by Chu and his colleagues, and this was a large study done uh, down in Boston and its suburbs by the Harvard uh, Health Group, and they looked at actually a fairly large number of children. Uh, total number of cases, you should see. Seven thousand six hundred and eleven. Um, well, I'm sorry, it's more than that because that's nine cases plus the number of cases. So seven. almost seventy-seven hundred cases. And you can see what they found. Uh, there was a there were some problems with this study. The, the major problems in the study was that they only looked at patients who had taken who had, who had gotten their prescriptions for ibuprofen filled at one of the Harvard uh, pharmacies. Um, And as you know, ibuprofen is over the counter, so there may have been many more patients who received ibuprofen who didn't get caught uh, in their net. Anyway, uh, what you can see is that there were only a total of four patients here, um, right there, who had received uh, ibuprofen, and only one of these received it within the past month. So, any any, any, any uh, medical students want to get extra credit and tell us what's the half-life of ibuprofen? Me, there's really with a buzzer, time's up, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's about 12 hours, okay. So, you're not going to have a whole lot of ibuprofen left in your system if you took it two weeks or 30 days ago. So, I would suggest to you that There isn't much of a connection based on this, in this study's work, uh, between ibuprofen and uh, superinfections. And finally, Dr. Lesko and his colleagues uh, did another study on invasive group A step infections and non-destroying anti-inflammatory drugs, almost always ibuprofen among children with uh, paracella, and their conclusion was that there was no association in the use of ibuprofen, which was the only NSAID that uh, parents were using, and necrotizing soft tissue infections. So uh, in summary, I think uh, it's pretty clear that NSAIDs as uh, anti-inflammatory medications do not increase the incidence either of malignancy or of infection. All right, next drug methotrexate. Is methotrexate an immunosuppressant. Well, let me start by giving a very brief history of methotrexate. It was first developed and uh, used by Sidney Farber down in Boston in 1948 for the treatment of children with acute uh, 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 leukemia. Um, Three years later, uh, Dr. Gubner and his associates, associates, started using it for patients adults with rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis and they found it to be quite helpful and they not only found it to be helpful for patients with arthritis their patients with psoriasis their skin got a lot better too so um, a couple of years later the dermatologist got into that And they started treating adults and children with psoriasis without arthritis. And they found that methotrexate was medical for those patients as well. So then 30 years later, uh, it is first used in Germany by Dr. Truppenbrock for children with what was then juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, is now juvenile idiopathic arthritis. I guess somewhere along the line we realized that we really didn't know what was the cause of JRA so we had to change it. Anyway, so methotrexate's been around for a long time used for a bunch of different things and it continues of course to be used to treat different forms of cancer in children um, as well as uh, it's used as an anti-inflammatory. Okay, so methotrexate and malignancy, methotrexate caused malignancy. Well, again, as I said, you can find uh, case reports about anything. And uh, typically, these case reports have uh, talked about children with either Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, they make this association, but it's certainly not clear based on these case reports that uh, there is actually any cause and effect going on. Um, This is worth... uh, pointing out that these these articles are talking about low-dose methotrexate. Uh, If you're treating a child for cancer with methotrexate, typically you're using orders of
2: magnitude doses higher
1: than what we rheumatologists use when we use it as an anti-inflammatory. And this has been well studied. And when you use it in high doses, methotrexate is a cytotoxic drug. But when you use it in low doses, it's not cytotoxic at all. It's anti-inflammatory. You know, it's like aspirin. Use aspirin at different doses and you get very different effects based on whatever dose you want to use. It's it's a great drug. You want to take just a little bit, keep you from getting a stroke or a heart attack. You Have a headache, you take a little bit more. And if you have arthritis or some other inflammatory condition, you take a lot more. very different effects based on the dose of the drug that you take. All right. Well, long time ago, these were adult uh, rheumatologists. Uh, they came out and said, "There's unanimous, unanimous agreement. Methotrexate at the doses that we rheumatologists use doesn't lead to infection or malignancy." Well, that's obviously easy to say. What's the proof? (laughs) All right. So uh, we had to wait, unfortunately, until 2012. Dr. Dupel and his associates from all across the country published this study Rates of Malignancy Associated with Juvenile Neopathic Arthritis in the Street. And I'm going to return to this study and another one similar to it uh, a couple of times. So I'm going to ask you to pay attention. this was a national study based on uh, children with Medicaid and they looked um, at uh, several groups, uh, children with uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, but also, look at that, 650,000 patients with asthma, 320,000 patients with ADHD. So, a large big national study taken in a lot of uh, patients. And here are the demographics of these patients. And down here at the bottom, uh, you can see what the patients with JIA were taking. uh, Almost half were on methotrexate at some point, a good deal fewer were on TNF inhibitors, and then other immunomodulatory agents. So those are, that's the kind of background information. What did they find? Well, it was very interesting. What they found was that if you look at JIA patients, right, these are all malignancies, crude rate for uh, 100,000 years. All JRA patients, uh, the crude rate was 79.3. The patients who hadn't had methotrexate or anything else had the highest rate of malignancy higher than patients who are on methotrexate without a TNF inhibitor, and higher by far than patients who are taking any TNF uh, inhibitor with or without methotrexate. <coughs> and here, here are the rates for asthma and ADHD. So really, you look at this, and it almost looks like methotrexate protects you from getting a malignancy if you have JIA. But that's not really the way to interpret this. The way to interpret this is that patients with JIA, as we've known for a long time, uh, or adults with rheumatoid arthritis, have a higher rate of malignancy than patients without JIA, whether they have asthma or ADHD or are perfectly healthy. So, that's the take home message. So that, in fact, methotrexate does not at all increase the incidence of malignancy in patients with JIA or, and we'll get to that uh, later a little bit, um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or whatever else they're being treated for. Dr. Fuplman and his colleagues did a similar study on rates of hospitalized bacterial infection associated with JIA and its treatment. And I won't show you the same slides all over again, but basically they show exactly the same thing, that methotrexate does not increase the rate of serious infection uh, in children with juvenile idiopathic arthritis or patients treated with methotrexate at anti-inflammatory doses or other conditions. So in summary, we do not have evidence that methotrexate used in anti-inflammatory doses is an immunosuppressant. It does not increase either the incidence of infection or of malignancy. So, about our next T N F inhibitors. I'm going to limit my discussion to these three uh, T N F inhibitors uh, for two reasons. Uh, first, these were the ones that were initially introduced. Infliximab came out in 1998. Uh, Etanercept a year later, 1999. Adalimumab was a little bit more recent. But these are the ones that have been around the longest. But in addition to that, these are the ones that continue to be used 90, 95% of the time when a TNF inhibitor is uh, 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 called upon to treat uh, a child with JIA or inflammatory bowel disease. These continue to uh, be responsible for the vast majority of TNF inhibitors use. So, TNF inhibitors in infection, and again, find case reports uh, about anything. Uh, These are all uh, cases in children, I apologize for the misspelling of Crohn's disease there in that first one. Um, Tuberculosis in a nine-year-old girl treated with inflexinab for systemic uh, JIA. Uh, I will note now, and I'll come back to it. Tuberculosis in adults with rheumatoid arthritis treated with TNF uh, inhibitors has been a big problem. But uh, as I stand here now, I feel fairly confident saying that there's been no child in the United States who's developed tuberculosis while taking this medication. It's happened <coughs> certainly in other countries, and perhaps it hasn't happened in this country because. We're supposed to test every child for tuberculosis before we initiate the therapy with these inhibitors. But uh, tuberculosis is not the problem in children, but it has been in adults to uh, So uh, the first study here was a large study from Australia and New uh, Zealand looking at patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and the second one was a study I've referred to by Dupont. And anyway, both of these studies, one by Lawrence and one by Dupont and his colleagues, did not come out <coughs> with the evidence that showed that there was, in fact, an increased rate of serious infections, that is, patients who required hospitalization in children treated with TNF inhibitors or um, either JIA or study inflammatory
0: bowel Most recently, this came out just last
1: month, this was a systematic review of the literature, not an original study itself, but it had a systematic review of the literature by Dr. Towsy, uh, came out last month, and again, they found no evidence of a severe increase of infections in patients treated. With TNF inhibitors, whether they had uh, JIA or uh, IBD. Um, So I think in general, uh, we have a lot of good evidence that shows that TNF inhibitors do not increase the rate of serious infections in children uh, regardless of their underlying disease. All right, how about malignancy? Well, there's been an association between Crohn's disease and malignancy in adults for decades. That, that's a fact. Uh, it's uh, much less true in children uh, than it is in adults, but uh, there is clearly uh, an association between Crohn's disease in adults and malignancy. Again, these typically are lymphomas that develop. In my preparation for this, I came across this, uh, hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma. It's really a terrible thing, which I was glad I wasn't aware of uh, beforehand. This is an almost universally fatal form of cancer, which uh, affects young men with Crohn's disease. Uh, the vast majority of patients are males who develop their cancer during their third decade that is in their 20s. And as I say, uh, it's almost universally fatal, unfortunately. And so, there is this association, again, not in the pediatric adolescent age group, but it does exist, Uh, and that exists, again, uh, regardless of the medications they're being treated with. Ah, the FDA, God bless them. So, in 2009, the FDA, uh, in its infinite wisdom, uh, decided to uh, put uh, a very scary warning on all uh, TNF uh, inhibitors that are sold, based on uh, really not very good science, I'm afraid. Um, And it's caused a lot of problems, because the black box is still there. And the black box uh, says that, uh, warns patients, that if you or your children use these medications, you're more likely to get cancer than if you don't use them. Well, it just isn't true, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, it's fortunate, that it's not true. But it's unfortunate that uh, uh, rheumatologists and gastroenterologists and others who use these medications have to uh, spend a lot more time trying to reassure uh, their patients and their patients' parents that, in fact, uh, it's not as scary as they're led to believe by what's in the product labeling. We've tried, I can't say we myself, but those in authority in uh, uh, pediatric hematology and in uh, pediatric gastroenterology have tried to get this rescinded, but uh, so far without success. So this is something we have to deal with, uh, but as I'll show you, it, it really isn't accurate. So, TNF inhibitors and malignancy, uh, the uh, uh, top study was one done in Greece, uh, looking at risk of lymphoma malignancies uh, in inflammatory bowel disease. And again, they did not find a connection there. And then a very large study in Austria done by Weisler and his associates uh, did not find any connection between uh, infliximab, remicade, and uh, malignancy. Again, we have Bucleman's study rates of malignancy associated with JIA and its treatment, and I'm not going to show you those slides again, but rates of malignancy are not increased with the use of tuberculosis uh, factors, just as they're not increased with the use of methotrexate. And if anything, uh, patients who receive these medications have a lower incidence of cancer than patient uh, population JIA, JIA who haven't received any So, uh, Dr. Dukum and his colleagues uh, concluded that JIA treatment, including tnf (coughs) inhibitors, did not appear to be significantly associated with the development of blindness. Well, now you can say, well, we've only been using these things for 15 years. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, you're right. We don't know. And maybe 20 or 30 years from now, uh, somebody uh, will have done some 40-year long-term study and show that this data is no longer accurate. But for now, it is accurate, and you just don't see a whole lot of 40 to 50-year studies, so don't hold your breath. <laughs> All right, I was only able to find two articles that dealt specifically, me, specifically with adalimabam, uh, one from the uh, gastroenterology literature, and the other dealing with children from Greece the uh, JIA. And again, they came up with the same conclusions, that adalimabam is uh, not associated with in malignancy in these uh, patient populations. Okay, now, what are those steroids? Are they immunosuppressants? Well, now when you yawn and go to sleep. Everybody knows that steroids are immunosuppressants. That's a no-brainer. Uh, well, uh, yes and no. Uh, I think we've got to look at some, some details. So I've listed some of the factors which influence the incidence of infections in the patients treated with steroids. Um, we'll start with patients. Um, having used steroids almost like water for 30 years uh, and for reading the literature, I can tell you that there's a tremendous variation between patients and their response to steroids. Uh, some will Tolerate a very high dose, and uh, it may or may not do what you want it to do in terms of efficacy. But uh, also, there's just tremendous variation in terms of what side effects they do or do not develop. And some will tolerate high doses of side effects and never become cushingoid, never uh, uh, pursue, never develop any of those side effects. Whereas others are a much lower dose will have terrible problems, so the patient is very important. The formulation of the drug. What are you using? Are you using cortisone, are you using hydrocortisone, prednisone, methylprednisolone. I mean, uh, as you probably know, the list of, of ways in which steroids have been formulated is a pretty long one, and it really does make a difference. Um, I can give uh, a gram of methylprednisolone. Uh, and have very different, and usually thankfully, far fewer side effects than if I give a hundred milligrams of prednisone, so that makes a difference. Then, administration uh, makes a difference, you can give these drugs uh, almost any way you can imagine, uh, certainly orally, you can inhale them, uh, you can give them intravenously, and in preparation for this study, I learned you can even Use them as a suppository. I feel really, you know, I've been practicing medicine for 35 years and I feel almost derelict. I've never used steroids as a suppository.
2: <laughs>
1: well, think of all the opportunities
2: I've missed. So, how, how long are you going to treat the patient? Is this going to be a one day thing or a week or a month? Are they going to be
1: on for years? That makes a big difference. Frequency. Um, you quickly learn uh, if you are fighting inflammatory conditions that the less frequently you have to give uh, corticosteroids, the less severe the side effects you're going to be. So if you can give, get away with giving them an IV treatment once a week, they have far fewer side effects, regardless of the dose, than if you're giving them something on a daily or twice a day basis. And um, so as I was taught and in practice, as soon as I could get patients from taking prednisone every day, get them taking every other day, the better off they would be in terms of side effects. Um, And then, of course, the dose makes a difference. And we'll speak more about that later. So there there are a lot of variables which one has to consider when talking about uh, corticosteroids as immunosuppressants. So uh, this was some time ago. And uh, Dale and Petersdorf, in their study on steroids and infectious diseases, Despite the fact that experimental studies have shown that uh, animals treated with steroids uh, get a lot of infections, hard to prove that in humans. Well, one of the reasons it's hard to prove it in humans back then was because they were using mega doses of steroids in their animals. I mean, nothing you'd ever do to a person. So those animals, poor fellows, uh, um, came down with many more infections and humans too, but not to the same degree. But a lot of that had to do with difference in dose. Okay. Uh, Immunosuppressive effects and infections associated with corticosteroid therapy, and I was trying to uh, um, say something towards this uh, uh, previously, but uh, the immunosuppressive activity of steroids cannot be estimated by extrapolation from their potency as anti-inflammatory. Again, you may get a big bang for your buck in terms of efficacy and not put the patient at state risk. So, steroids and infection, the natural history of Cushing syndrome. This was an article published a long time ago, but it was a good article about the patients who studied 50 patients with uh, Cushing syndrome. Well, as you know, in Cushing syndrome, um, the adrenal glands are running a the block, they're putting out tons of steroids constantly. So um, it's, a, 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 it's like these patients were being given large doses of steroids, and in fact, more than half of these patients died of infection. If so, in fact, oh, therefore, maybe steroids aren't very good if they cause infections. Sure. Okay. And then we had two studies done: one in '56, one in '61, on children and children who had uh, chickenpox and were given cortisone. Now, the first one was rather small, only six patients by Hackney and Eli in 1956. But one of those uh, children died, and uh, uh, the other five had much more severe courses uh, than one might expect. The second study by Finkel was a larger, and again, they found there was significant morbidity and mortality associated with the use of steroids in uh, patients with uh, varicella. Um, this, this shouldn't come as too big a surprise to any of us. Uh, but uh, there are people in the audience who are old enough to remember debates about, gee, should we treat bronchiolitis with steroids? Gee, when do we use steroids in the treatment of meningitis? So, this whether to use uh, anti inflammatory medications and severe infections has uh, uh, over the years been a big question. All right. So, Here's a study uh, done at Johns Hopkins. They had 185 patients. This was mostly adults, but some children as well. And uh, they had a total of 185 patients with staphylococcal bacteremia. And what they found was that the mortality on steroids was 32%, but it was actually higher uh, overall, indicating, uh, to me at least, that, you know, Maybe, more, maybe maybe steroids aren't, aren't as dangerous as some other things that uh, might be going on. Candidiasis, uh, oral candidiasis increases in patients who are using inhaled uh, steroids. These are both uh, pediatric studies. Um, ACTH therapy in uh, infantile spasm side effects. And again, uh, these patients develop infections. Uh, as well as other problems. So there's clearly a connection. But again, uh, these are, for the most part, expanded, if you will, case reports. These are not uh, controlled studies. Dr. Stuck and his colleagues uh, reviewed 71 clinical trials in which patients were in to treatment with or without systemic corticosteroids. Again, these were mostly adults, but there were some children that were involved. Now, I'll admit to you that I was too lazy to go back and look at all 71 of these trials. Uh, so I can't tell you exactly why only 23 of them reported infections. Uh, perhaps they were not even looking at side effects so much as at the efficacy of the drug. But 16 of the 23 uh, showed that patients treated with steroids had more infections, but five showed that they had less infections. And two, showed there was no difference. So in this study, uh, more than 4,000 patients, almost a third of the studies showed that steroids were not so bad or maybe even good for you. They also found that no trial using good, sorry, uh, no trial using less than 10 milligrams a day of prednisone showed higher risk. That is that patients could take up to 10 milligrams of prednisone day for prolonged periods of time, and not uh, run the risk of developing uh, a significant infection. And cumulative, cumulative dose also point to less than 700. Uh, so that information, again, is it's somewhat equivocal, and that probably goes back to those factors that I started off with, oh, the individual patient, the dose that you're using, the frequency and so on and so forth. Now, go back to Bufam study, food rates of hospitalized bacterial infection by disease cohort. Again, this is looking at patients with uh, JIA and uh, down to root, right? You also have the uh, ADH cohort. And uh, here over here on the right, you have the patients being treated uh, with uh, glucocorticoids, and they're either currently on them or not currently. And if you look at the entire cohort across here at the top, uh, the overall rate is certainly higher in patients with JIA than in patients with ADHD. But when it really goes up is with current use. And fortunately, it seems to go back down. If you have them in the past, you should never happened, uh, but are not having them now. And again, whether you're taking Methyltrexate or TNF doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference uh, on this basic paper. So yes, uh, if you're taking steroids, you have JIA, you're more likely to develop bacterial infection than if you're not. This was the only report I could find in pediatric literature connecting steroids to uh, malignancy. Uh, this was a six-year-old boy who developed uh, something called the epidural hypernoma as a complication of steroid treatment. Again, just a case report. Oh, not sure how absolutely accurate uh, that is as being represented. So, uh, in summary, uh, uh, no, I can't relate. You shouldn't relate the use of steroids in children to development of malignancy. You can relate it. Uh, Corticosteroids may be, can be immunosuppressants as I've defined them, but a lot depends on the factors that I've alluded to, and so it's not a cross-the-board thing, and uh, uh, it, it really does depend on what kind of steroid you're using, how much you're using, how long you're using it for, the individual patient, and so on and so forth. Now, it's easy for me to stand here in a lecture hall and say that, uh, but as I said, I've used these things for, for 30 years now and use them frequently, and I've caused every side effect known to man from steroids. I mean, I've personally broken the backs of three patients because of collapsed vertebral bodies. Um, and for uh, suitism, moon faces, the adolescents, they all get ornery as hell. <laughs> the younger children don't seem to get quite so angry with uh, uh, high dose of steroid. Not the yeah. steroids. Uh, <laughs> Not those there. <laughs> I stand corrected. Okay. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so no, these are dangerous drugs. And you've got to be careful, of it, and especially if you're talking about treating a chronic illness and you're going to have to use them for a long period of time. Uh, uh, my use of them has certainly changed over the past 30 years, and I've been very fortunate in that different medications been developed, especially these TNF inhibitors. But even before them, methotrexate was very helpful in uh, allowing me to use less uh, uh, steroids than I had previously. But there's still many inflammatory conditions, uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, malomyositis, et cetera, et cetera, uh, different forms of vasculitis. When you really are forced to use these drugs, and uh, they can cause terrible problems, there's no question about it and infection is one of those. Uh, so you, you do have to be careful, but uh, you don't necessarily have to be careful uh, about giving Johnny uh, a one-week course of uh, steroids or whatever, if he's not going to be doing that on a regular basis. Uh, you got to be careful with your though, so for sure, because if you've got a patient with bad asthma, they start getting recurrent, uh, short, acute doses of steroids. Those will add up, and they'll, they'll develop problems if you're not careful. So, uh, yes, uh, steroids can cause uh, infections, but not malignancy. Um, so, uh, it's now, as you know, your reward for this, the limitations of your studies, uh, in articles. I don't know how that came to be popular, um, but uh, anyway, I thought I should do it. Anyway, so the first limitation of this study is there's only one investigator, which of course is ridiculous. You have one person hope to uh, do a study all by him or else herself. I mean, here's a case report, and it took eight people to write one case report. So the idea that a single investigator, be it me or anybody else, could do an entire study is clearly a limitation right there. All right, next. Well, there were no statistics. Uh, I showed you some tables, uh, and some of the studies I looked at certainly used statistics, but I didn't use statistics. And of course, you can't have a study these days without statistics. Um, I must admit to having a bit of a prejudice, and uh, uh, the former Prime Minister of England uh, pretty much summed up my feeling about statistics three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics, obviously being the worst kind. Um, but even if you don't have that feeling, uh, I think uh, statistics, statistics have gotten a little bit out of hand. So I went back and I asked myself, well, gee, are there any papers in literature that don't have statistics? And I actually found some, and they weren't recent, but, but they were good papers. So, Uh, Going back to 1945, you may recognize some of these. Uh, Elizabeth Tauzy, George Blaylock uh, wrote an article which uh, uh, has been helpful over the years in the treatment of uh, congenital heart disease. There were no statistics in that paper. Uh, I chose one of any of 30 or 40 articles that Hayden Alexander published uh, on the treatment Flu, meningitis. She was really one of the very first major pioneers in the treatment of meningitis with antibiotics. No statistics in that paper. And uh, you're probably familiar with Virginia Apgar's work and uh, her proposal for evaluation of the newborn. We actually, I think, still use Dr. Apgar's approach to assess the newborn. And she didn't use any statistics. Now, I, I recognize that these are old, and I certainly don't for a second mean to imply that my study is anywhere near as important. Yes, of course it is, but I just want to show you that at least not too long ago, people were able to write a scientific paper, a fairly good one, without using statistics. Well, so I took it a step further. Uh, I did my own study on statistics, and uh, I asked a group of general pediatricians Kept away from academicians, I asked them a simple question. I said, Do you fully understand the statistics that you find in the journal of Pediatrics, the articles in the journal of Pediatrics? And first, the demographics. Uh, there were 29 participants. Why 29? Well, I got tired of asking people, number one, and uh, it's a prime number. I thought, good. Uh, these are all general pediatricians, there's the age range, uh, uh, slightly more female than male, uh, there. And so this was the response, these were the responses to the question. Uh, Fifteen <laughs> <admitted parents. laughs> eleven not really, uh, one person and uh, jokesters that are joking, uh, and, but only two out of the 29, and these were in the younger range group. I will tell you, uh, said that they actually understood all the statistics. So I guess I'd throw out to the audience: you know, nobody, or almost nobody, understands the statistics that are being used to show that the data presented is, in fact, worthwhile. Something's not worthwhile. Anyway. So, uh, and lastly, acknowledgments. Well, I haven't made any acknowledgments. I did, however, find this and thought it worthy of, of putting on the board. I asked the authors for permission before doing this.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry. Uh, actually, any errors in this talk are my responsibility is a place to this And that's all she wrote. So thank you. <laughs> yes, I don't know what we're supposed to end. on the, the time for questions?
0: There are time for questions.
1: Two things. One, uh, just to add to your list of uh, interesting papers with no statistics. Uh, Dr. Fick, I think, principal, cardiac output, is only one paragraph of no, no statistics. The other thing is, assuming for the sake of this question that uh, patients actively taking steroids are at higher risk for infection, how long does it take for that to Per in a sense, is it a day, is it a week, is it a month, is... it's uh, an excellent question. Uh, anyone with uh, experience in infectious disease carry to handle that for me? Thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, so, my answer to the question is A number one, I don't know. Uh, B number two, the data is uh, hard to put your finger on again because there's a lot of patient variability. But if your patient's been on significant dose of steroids for more than a week, uh, you should probably start thinking that you know, they, they may be more susceptible. Two or three days isn't going to make the difference. But get into a week or ten days. And when I talk, when I'm talking about a significant dose, I'm talking about, about one or two milligrams per kilo per day of prednisone or Yes, sir. Uh,
0: could you comment on the use of prophylactic antibiotics in patients? Um, on chronic steroids, particularly
1: um, to prevent um, pneumocystis? I think it's a lousy idea. I think that uh, you get yourself into a lot of trouble by doing that sort of thing on across the board basis. There may be individual patients, for instance, who have a history of pneumocystis or have a history of other. Uh, severe infections, uh, and you have to continue to take large doses of, of steroids. But I, 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 would not, I would not feel at all comfortable saying that everybody who takes steroids needs to be put on X antibiotic or X antimicrobial because they might develop infections. I said, really, we have to do that on case by case basis, and. I would, I mean, I, I have in the past, but only in, I've done it in patients with lupus, frankly. I don't think I've ever done it in a patient with any other condition who's had recurrent infections, and then I, you know, typically urinary tract infections, and I've done that. But as a general rule, I,
2: I would not feel comfortable. But yes, sir, you have a comment about that, or just another question? I just question. wanted to say that the, the that the, uh that you've reached are fairly uniform across the age spectrum, so the TB risk in adults as well as children is very low in America. It's higher in Europe, considerably higher in Southeast Asia, so there's a big discordance there. The rest of the infection rates are pretty pretty minimal um, in both methotrexate and TNF. In in adults? In, in, In adults and children. Um, So, I mean, I don't think there's much discordance. And as far as the malignancy goes, um, the malignancy rates are lower in patients with TNF and it's probably primarily a detection bias issue because they get followed so much closer. Um, But to answer your question, there is a discordance amongst individual diseases that we treat with corticosteroids. So, patients with uh, with uh, granulomatous diseases, ankylosing positive are at higher risk, as is dermatomyositis and a little bit less lupus, but RA is not very much at risk. The 20 milligram of daily steroid criteria that the infectious disease people use is an HIV-determined uh, uh, cutoff and doesn't relate to rheumatic diseases and their propensity to PJP, which is much, much lower than the HIV Yes, sir. You alluded to the, the uh, poor science, poor uh, decision making in the black box assignment for uh, some of these uh, uh, drugs. And we saw that with uh, ADHD meds uh, and concern about cardiac risk. And as you may know recently, the promulgation of new guidelines for prevention of heart disease or what you do has created a lot of controversy. Do you have any observations from your colleagues and professionally why the black box things get put out despite the fact that good scientists are looking at the same data that you looked at? Is this a political issue or a cover your butt issue or what do you think is happening? Yes and
1: yes. To to be fair to the FDA, uh, My impression of these is, is this true? I I think in some ways, in some instances, (coughs) the FDA errs on the conservative side. That is that if there's significant evidence, good or bad, that a drug may be dangerous in a particular way, they're going to start alerting people that. Now, I'll have to make a caveat to that, that I think there have certainly been instances in the past where the opposite has been true, where the FDA has not been <coughs> proactive enough, if you will, in alerting uh, physicians as well as the general public to dangers of certain medications. Um, <clears throat> but, and I, I don't pretend to know the inner workings of the Federal Drug Administration or how they come to these conclusions were Um, you know, To be fair to them, there were not when they issued this warning. Uh, uh, there were not really good uh, scientific studies addressing the question of do TNF inhibitors cause malignancy or might they be responsible for them or not? Human study didn't come out, data, for instance, until three years later. And even in the adult literature, while there were a lot of studies. There was, there were a lot of confounding variables. Uh, I think in the rear, there's an adult rheumatologist, uh, and he will tell you, as already alluded to, that adults with rheumatoid arthritis already have increased um, uh, incidence of malignancy you know, compared to patients who don't have that disease. And so there are a lot of confounding variables. And again, it's tough to do, as you know, it's tough to do really good science. And so you can have reports, you can even have not just case reports, but studies coming out, and there are certainly these, are these in the literature, which lead you to believe that the rate of malignancy is increased in certain population groups taking these medications. Uh, but it turns out really not, not to be true. And so, you know, um, God bless them, you know, they're uh, putting on their pants one leg at a time like the rest of us. And I'm sure they're doing the best they can. Uh, I suspect that, that there are political pressures. I suspect that, as I say, in some instances they're trying to err on the side of conservatism, and protect people rather than run the risk of being yelled at for not having done the right thing. Uh, so I suspect, as with uh, everything else, is a bunch of different problems. Sorry,
0: can't be more Any other questions? If not, a um... I'll uh, thank you, accepting your limitations of your (laughs) one-hand study. I appreciate the effort that you put forth to review a complex set of literature. Thanks for sharing with us your enjoyable satirical sense of humor.